preface. On June 11, 2008, then-Prime Minister Stephen Harper would formally apologize for the federal government's role in the residential school program, initiating a seven-year Truth and Reconciliation Commission. While far from perfect, it was the first attempt of any real substance to right the wrongs of the past, or at least to properly understand them. It also resulted in tens of thousands of hours of research and testimony, without which this book would not be possible. Introduction In Canada, the Indian residential school system was a network of mandatory boarding schools for Indigenous peoples. The network was funded by the Canadian government's Department of Indian Affairs and administered by Christian churches. The school system was created to remove indigenous children from the influence of their own culture and assimilate them into the dominant European-Canadian culture. Over the course of the system's more than 100-year existence, at least 150,000 children were placed in residential schools nationally. By the 1930s, about 30% of Indigenous children were believed to be attending residential schools. The number of school-related deaths remains unknown due to incomplete records. Estimates range from 3,200 to over 30,000. Over the last few years, the history of the relationship between Canada's Indigenous peoples, the Government of Canada, and the Church has come to the forefront of public discourse. A darker shade has been applied to the colonial history of the country, which has had mixed results in acceptance from average Canadians. In the era of wokeness, these topics can become even more incendiary than they have been historically, and even more careful attention must be made to how they are reported and discussed. Let me be clear that the point of this book is not to throw fuel on an already raging fire, but to make sure that in the discussion, the voices of the students that attended these institutions is not lost in the political noise that frequents our reality in early 2022. Governments and institutions have historically been the largest purveyors of human suffering, and the case of the Canadian residential school system fits the mold. The relationship between Canadians and First Nations is one that would be better served by open dialogue than with legislation. We cannot move into a better or more unified future until the mistakes of the past are, at a minimum, realized. First Nations communities find themselves still to this day reeling and recovering from a culturally traumatic experience that is less than a generation past. Poverty, substance abuse, and suicide plague many Indigenous communities to this day, and unless we learn the why of the situation, correcting it for future generations seems impossible. This book will avoid policy and solutions and focus more on storytelling, though not by the author, by the testimony of hundreds of Indigenous people that attended the schools over the last 50-60 years as recounted to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada between 2008 and 2015. In their own words, we can hope to come to learn the pain they experienced daily, what it was like to be taken away from your family and community and raised in the schools sometimes not seeing your family for months or years, and in still more sad and extreme cases, never again. While painful, reading these accounts offer us all a brighter future, less affected by judgment and misunderstanding and more favorable to empathy. 
It's time to move beyond blaming and shaming and into an era of understanding and compassion between Canada and First Nations communities. The point of this book is not to lay blame, but instead to start a conversation about our tumultuous past and how, with that past in mind, we can move forward together. Before the Schools In this chapter, students reminisce on happier and simpler times before the forced attendance of residential schools. Canada's indigenous populations existed for thousands of years off the land and were still in a period of adjustment to the onset of Europeans and the creation of reserves. In the mid-1880s, the residential school system would come into being and, by 1920, amendments to the Indian Act would make attendance mandatory and make attendance at any other institution illegal. The system was brought in by Prime Minister John A. Macdonald after sending Nicholas Flood Davin to study industrial schools for Indigenous children in the United States. Davin's recommendation to follow the U.S. example of aggressive civilization led to public funding for the Canadian residential school system. If anything is to be done with the Indian, we must catch him very young. The children must be kept constantly within a circle of civilized conditions. Davin wrote in his 1879 report on industrial schools for Indians and half-breeds. While these students would have already been living under the reserve system for several years, mandatory attendance was to catch them off guard. Taking children once raised by the extended family and greater community into institutions to be raised by the government and church officials, who had little to no regard for their culture, and in extreme cases, even their safety. In this first chapter, we will hear some accounts from life before being taken to the schools, to live for months and even years at a time. Bob Baxter When I think back to my childhood, it brings back memories, really nice memories of how life was as Anishinaabe, as you know, how we, how we lived before, before we were sent to school. The things that I remember, the legends at night that my dad used to tell us stories, and how he used to show us how to track and funny things that happened. You know, there's a lot of things that are really, that are still in my thoughts of how we were loved by our parents. They really cared for us. And it was such a good life, you know. It, it's doing the things like, it was free. We were free, I guess is the word I'm looking for. It's a real free environment of us. I'm not saying that we didn't get disciplined if we got, if we did something wrong, but you know. There was that, but not, but it was a friendly, friendly, like a loving discipline, if you will. Louise Bosom. I'm come from a long way. I came a long way. I'm from Great Lake Mysticity. That's where I was born in the bush. It was a pride for me to say that because I was born in the bush in a tent. It's something that remains in my heart, going to the woods, living in the woods. It's in my heart. Before going to the boarding school, my parents often told me what they were doing in the woods when I was born. What they were doing, we were in camp with other families. The stories my father told us, my mother too. Before she was enrolled in residential school in Quebec in the 1960s, Therese Niquet lived on what she described as the family territory. She had very positive memories of that part of her life. I remember especially the winter landscapes, fall landscapes too. I remember very well I often looked at my father, hunting beaver especially. I admired my father a lot, and I remember at one point I was looking at him, I think I was on the small hill, and he was below. 
he had made a hole in the ice and he was hunting beaver with a with a harpoon and I was there and I was looking at him and I was singing and I remember when I was a kid I sang a lot very often and I also remember that we lived or my my paternal grandmother was often with us my my father's mother and we lived in a large family also an extended family in the bush those are great memories Jeanette Cuckoo who attended the La Touque Quebec school in the 1960s said she was a member of what might be the last generation of Aboriginal people who were raised in the forest. In the forest, what I remember of my childhood was bearskin, which I liked. I was there, and it was the bearskin that my father put for us to sit on. That was it. That is why I'm pleased to see that here. And what I remember in my childhood also was the, uh, my mother's songs, because we lived in tents, and there was young children, and my mother sang for the youngest. And at the same time, this helped us to fall asleep. It was beneficial to everyone. My mother's songs, and that is what I remember. That is what I am happy to say, that it was what was I was raised with and what was instilled in me, so to speak. Albert Elias grew up in the Northwest Territories near the community of Tuktoyaktuk. Yeah, when I first opened, like when I first saw the world, I guess we were outdoors. And when I opened my eyes and started to, you know, and I just a baby, I guess, and I we were out in the land. The land was all around me, the snow, the sky, the sun. And I had my parents. We had a dog team. We were traveling. I think it was on Banks Island. And I was amazed at what I saw, just the environment, the peace, the strength, the love, the smile on my dad's face. And when I wake up, he's singing a short song to me of love. Bob Baxter was born on the Albany River in northern Ontario. So that's how I that's how I grew up, you know. And knowing all that stuff, we're listening to the familiar sounds of my dad's snowshoes in the winter when he came to when uh, he came back from trapping late in the afternoon towards when it's already dark and waiting for him to come home and tell us the legends, you know, because there's no TV back then. So it was great. My mom was great too. She really looked after us, made sure that we were clothed and fed. That was good times. I remember eating wild game all the time. Because we had our grandparents that really looked after us too. I have good memories of, well, until, until that day we were taken from there, taken away to school. Prior to attending the Roman Catholic school in Kenora, Ontario, Linda Pafase MacDonald lived with her family near Sydney Lake in northwestern Ontario in the 1950s. We spent most of our time in the trap line in the cabin and we'd play outside and it was really good. There was no drinking. There was, it was like, it was a small sized cabin and my parents took good care of us. And they really, I remember those happy days, but there was no violence. We had a little bit of food, but we always had a meal. Like we ate the beaver meat or moose meat, if my dad got a moose, uh, and deer meat and fish. She could not recall being physically disciplined during this time. They more or less just told me, you know, don't do this. You know, you'll hurt yourself and whatnot, but it was all in Ojibwe all spoken in Ojibwe. And I spoke Ojibwe when I was a child and there was a lot of fun. And we would, my parents would take us out blueberry picking and my grandparents would always take us blueberry picking or we'd go in a canoe and we'd go, you know, or my grandmother would always be gathering traditional medicines. She had picked the wild ginger and I would go with her and we'd go pick all the medicines that we needed. And I also remember my mom picking up this medicine and it would like, if we had any cut or open wound, she would use this like a ball, like sort of a fungus ball, and she would open it and she would 
put it on our wound or whatever and would heal, you know, real fast. And she knew all her traditional medicines. And at the time, I remember my, my grandpa and my dad, they used to have a drum and they would, you know, drum and they would sing during certain times of the year. Mabel Brown had similar memories of her life growing up in the Northwest Territories. You know, life in the bush is really good. And when we were growing up, we went. When my dad was alive, him and my mom brought us out into the bush. And we, we went as a family together. They taught us how to do things. They'd tell us first, they'd show us, and then we'd do it. And then that's how we learned that. And that's how so many people now know when when we see a snare or how to set it or set traps, because my grandmother showed me how to set traps and how to tell what kind of trees are what and what the different kinds of things you take off the gum and things like that, and when it's used for what it's used for. And, and you know, Chu and my mom and dad used to dig up roots from the ground and I used to just love that roots. Chew on it and all those things are medicine for our bodies too. And I still, I still can't eat just store-bought foods. I have to have caribou or fish or moose meat or something like that and to, to feel full, to feel satisfied. Emily Kamach was born in 1953 in York Factory, Manitoba, and grew up in York Landing. My family is Cree in origin. My mom and dad spoke Cree, and that's my native language is Cree. And that's the only language I spoke at home. And when I was six years old, I only understood basic, really like from my brothers and sisters when they came back from residential school, like, what is your name? And I knew to say Emily and not very much English. And I was very close to my mother. Her and I were, I was just attached to her. Like I loved my mother and I knew she loved me. Same with my father. He showed it in different ways. He was a very quiet man, but his actions spoke volumes. He hunted, he was a hunter, a trapper, a fisherman. And that's how we survived, my family, because he didn't work, he didn't have a job. And my father was a, what they call a lay reader in the Anglican faith. He led church services in my community and my family was Anglican in faith. My father ran the services in my hometown of York Landing. He did the services in Cree and that's what I miss about our community right now is the aspect, is the Cree singing, because it's not around anymore. Peter Ernick was born near Repulse Bay in what is now Nunavut. I lived in an igloo in the wintertime. A very happy upbringing with my family, and both my mother and my father were very good storytellers. And they would tell legends, and they would sing songs, traditional, sing traditional Inuit songs. They would, my, my father in particular, would talk about hunting stories. My mother would sew all the clothes that we had, you know, caribou clothing and things like that, sealskin clothing. I still wear sealskin clothing today, particularly my boots, you know, when I'm, when I'm dancing, for example. So my mother would sew, teaching my sister how to sew, so that she would become a very good seamstress when she grows up or older. And in the meantime, I was apparently being trained to be a good Inuk, be able to hunt animals for survival. Caribou, seals, a square flipper, beard seal, arctic char, you know, these kinds of things, including birds. And I was also being told, or being taught how to build an igloo, a snow house. When I was a little boy, growing up to be a young boy at that time, my other memories include walking on the land with my father. My father was my mentor. He, he, he was a great hunter. So I would go out with him on the land, walking in search of caribou, and I'd watch him each time he caught a caribou, and I would learn by observing. As Inuit, I learned a long, long time ago that you learn by observation. That's what I was doing as a little boy, becoming a young man at that particular period of time. So in the wintertime, we would travel by dog team. I remember traveling by dog team as early as three or four years old. 
hunting again, you know, hunting is a way of life that I remember when I was growing up for survival. And caribou hunting and seal hunting and fishing. And my, my father also did some trapping foxes. Anthony Henry was born in Swan Lake, Ontario. I was born in a tent in the woods, so I was brought to the world in a very harsh environment, which I guess is a good thing because it made me the tough guy I am. He said he was raised in a traditional lifestyle based on trapping, hunting, fishing, and harvesting of edible plants, such as wild rice and other edible materials. Total, total traditional style is what I call it. My parents were extraordinary people. They prepared me to be an independent individual. They taught me a lot of things that I've used throughout my life as a traditional person. They taught me how to survive. As Albert Fiddler was growing up in Saskatchewan, his father taught him how to live off the land. I remember my dad teaching me how to hunt and learn how to snare rabbits, learn how to take care of horses. I was riding horses already on four years old, and I'm riding with a bareback, and I enjoy that thing. I still remember that because I was a fairly decent cowboy, you know, like Little Beaver, as they used to call him in the comic books. I used to hang on to just the mane. I didn't, I didn't even have a brittle. His father also taught him how to hunt. And it's funny sometimes, you know, and some of it was fun. Some of it was kind of patience. And pretty chilly sometimes when he was telling me when how to snare chickens out of the, out of the willows. We were using this, uh, a little wire and a long stick and standing on the dark side of, of, and waiting for the chickens to come and feed on the willows. And now we'd snare them down, yeah. Doris Young attended residential schools in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. Her early childhood was spent in northern Manitoba. The family that I had, my mother and father and my brothers and sisters and my grandparents and my aunties and uncles. The community I lived in was a safe one. It was a place where we were cared for and loved by our parents and our grandparents. And that community I lived at, we were safe. We were, we were well taken care of. We lived on the land, on the water, meaning by fishing. My dad was a chief, but he was also what we would call a laborer in those days. But he was also a hunter, trapper, and fisherman. And that's how he supported us. And my mother spoke only Cree, and that's the language that we spoke in our household. And she taught us it was very important for us to, to have that language because it was the basis of our culture as I came to understand it later in, in life. And she was the only one that enforced that, the language that we spoke in our house. Dolores Adolph was born in 1951 and grew up in a self-sufficient Aboriginal family in British Columbia. Before I came to residential school, our, our families fished and hunted for our food. Our mother, she grew our own vegetables because we were quite a ways from the stores and because we lived in the remote area where, where there's no stores. And you know, there was our means of travel was canoes, so that's how we traveled and our our home life, it was not the greatest, but what our parents were trying to teach us how to, how to be, keep busy, and then for us not to say there's nothing to do. So we, we packed water and we packed, we packed our wood. Sometimes we had to roll our wood up, up the dike, and then roll it down to the other side. And we had to learn how to cut our, our wood and make kindling for the fire. And that was our way of life. And, and my grandfather was busy trying to teach us how to build canoes build, make paddles, build a baler to bail water out of our canoe. And, and then they were trying to teach us how to, how to race on those old fishing canoes. And we always beat the boys and they didn't like that because we, we beat them all the time. So that meant that we were, that we were strong at that point, you know, before we came to residential school. 
And uh, my life has been upside down since I came to residential school. Rosalie Weber, who later attended a boarding school in Newfoundland, spent her early childhood with her parents in Labrador in the 1940s. My father was a fisherman, and my mother also worked with him, and they worked together. He was a trapper, and my mom trapped with him. Also, my mom made all of our clothes and all of his clothing. And they knitted and they cooked, and my mom was a midwife. It was very happy. We were always busy with the family. Everything was a family thing, you know? I remember gathering water from one of the little brooks that ran through Spotted Islands, where I was born. I remember, you know, the dogs. I remember my brothers, and I had one sister, and I had a, another sister, a stepsister, but she lived in Newfoundland, and I didn't know her. We were quite happy, you know, and my mother was a hunter like my dad. They'd go out in partridge season and and always in competition and with a single 22 she'd come in and with about 150 and he'd be lucky to make the, the 100. <laughs> and then the community would take it and it would be bottled and canned for the winter provisions because being being a trapper in the wintertime, they all had their own trapping areas. So they many of them went in their own trap lines and as we did and my father trapped in Porcupine Bay. And so we would journey there when fishing season was over. I was just a small child, so I remember. Martha Loon was born in 1972 in northwestern Ontario and attended the Poplar Hill Ontario School in the 1970s. Stories were a large part of the education she received from her parents. There were stories that, you know, they, they taught us how, how to behave. You know, they taught us our values. Even just, you know, how, you know, hear stories about the beaver. And I always used to wonder why my mom would, every time she was skinning beaver, she'd always set aside the, the kneecaps separately. She'd put those aside. And then after afterwards, she'd go, she'd go either paddle out to the water somewhere, like a deep part, and that's where she threw them in. And I always know, wondered why she would do that. I've never questioned. It wasn't until I was older I asked her, like, why do you do that? She says, you know, this is what we're supposed to do, to respect and honor the beaver, to thank the beaver for giving its life so that we could eat it, use its pelt. This is what the beaver wants us to do. The same thing as you treat a duck, a, a duck the, the duck bones a certain way. You know, all that's got, got purpose and a reason for it. Grandparents played an important role in raising children in many communities. Richard Hall, who went to the Alberni British Columbia School, recalled with deep affection his pre-residential school upbringing and the role that his grandparents played. My grandmother, she taught us to be orderly. She taught us to go to church. She dressed us to go to church. She loved the church. My playground was my friends. With my friends was the mountains, streams, the ocean. And we were raised in the ocean because we went fishing all summer long and we traveled to the communities, the fishing grounds, because at the mountains where places where we spend our days, times, the rivers, from playing in the river, no fear, and that was normal. Because my grandfather, he took me with him at the young age. He took me, he taught me to work in the boats with him. He taught me how to repair boats. He would take me to talk to his friends, and all he did was to speak their language and speak their native tongue while they prepared fish around the fire. He took me wherever he went, and I later learned that he was my lifeline. He helped me and guided me the best he could. Patrick James Hall was born in 1960 and grew up in what is now called the Dakota Teepee First Nation. And I remember, I remember a lot of times, I guess, with my grandfather and my grandmother. One of them in my mind, I remember. My grandfather used to haul wood on a sleigh. He had horses. 
and so my older brothers would go with him too and we just he, he'd take us for horse, horse rides and he used to talk with us all the time in dakota i mean we used to we used to remember what he said because we'd always be laughing having fun and my grandpa was a very very active guy he, he always made sure you know he made sure that we had everything for the family he used to go hunting deer hunting and fishing trapping and my mother too she was a very hard worker because she used to be hauling water cutting wood that was just during the winters it was very hard because we'd have to cut wood and break the ice for water and heat it up for the stove one former student who attended residential school in the northwest territories recalled that her home life was violent and frightening there was a lot of violence there was a lot of we were very afraid of my father he was a very angry man and and my mother used to run away on him and he used to come home to us kids and then just really verbally abuse us and make us really scared of him. We used to be, uh, I used to run to the neighbors and hide behind their door because I was so scared of him. Kidnapped by institutions. Imagine if you can back to your earliest childhood memories. The safety most of us felt around our loved ones, having our mothers, fathers, grandparents, and siblings in our lives to help lighten the load and comfort us in hard times. Or perhaps you're a parent. Imagine the church or the state showing up at your door and under the threat of violence via incarceration, demanding your children as young as six be taken by them to an institution of their choosing to be properly educated and or re-educated. This was the reality faced by many indigenous parents and grandparents in the late 19th and early 20th century in Canada and several other countries such as the United States, Australia, and New Zealand, to name a few. In this chapter, the focus will be that moment of departure. How did it feel to be ripped away from your family when you were only a child and brought someplace where you couldn't understand the culture or the language? Through the stories of those that were there, we can try and imagine ourselves in their shoes, as uncomfortable as that may be. When Josephine Eschkebach was eight years old, a priest came to her home in northern Ontario and presented her mother with a letter. My mother opened the letter, and I could see her face. I could see her face. It was kind of sad, but mad too. She said to me, I have to let you go, she told us. So we had to go go to school, a Spanish residential school. Isaac Daniels recalled one dramatic evening in 1945 when the Indian agent came to his father's home on the James Smith Reserve in Saskatchewan. I didn't understand a word because I spoke Cree. Cree was the main language in our family. So, so my dad was kind of angry. I kept seeing him pointing to that Indian agent. So that night we were going into bed. It was just a one-room shack we all lived in. And I heard my dad talking to my mom there. He was kind of crying, but he was talking in Cree now. He said that it's either residential school for my boys or I go to jail. He said that in Cree, so I overheard him. So I said the next morning, we, we all got up, and I said, well, I'm going to residential school because I don't, didn't want my dad to go to jail. Donna Antoine was enrolled in a British Columbia residential school after a visit from a government official to her family. It must have been in the summer the, the Indian agent came to, to see my father. I imagine it must have been the Indian agent because it looked pretty serious. He was talking to him for some time and because we couldn't understand, we, we couldn't even eavesdrop what they were talking about. So after some time spent there, father sat 
sat us down and told us that the this Indian agent came to tell us, tell him that we had to go to school, to a boarding school, one that is not close to our home, but far away. The official had told her father that he would be sent to jail if he did not send Antoine to residential school. We were sort of caught in, in wanting to stay home and seeing our parents go to jail, and we thought, we must have thought, who's going to look after us if our parents go to jail? In the late 1940s, Viteline Elsie Jenner was living with her family in northern Alberta. My, my mom and dad loved me, loved all of us a lot. They took care of us the best that they knew how. And I felt so comfortable being at home. This came to an end in the fall of 1951. My parents were told that we had to go to residential school. And prior to that, at times, my dad didn't make very much money. So sometimes he would go to the welfare to get to get ration or get some money to support 12 of us. And my parents were told that if they didn't put us in residential school, that all that would be cut off. So my parents felt forced to put us in the residential school, eight of us. Eight out of, of 12. Many parents sent their children to residential school for one reason. They had been told they would be sent to jail if they kept their children at home. Ken A. Little Deer's father told him that, If I didn't go to school, he'd go to jail. That's what he told me. As a result, he was enrolled in the Sioux Lookout Ontario School. Andrew Bullcalf was raised by his grandfather, Herbert Bullcalf. When he was enrolled in residential school in Cardston, Alberta, his grandfather was told that if he didn't bring me, my grandfather would be would, would go to jail and be charged. When Martha Manus told her mother she did not wish to return to the Roman Catholic school in Cardston, her mother explained, If you don't go to school, your dad is going to go to jail. We're going to get a letter written in red, and that's very serious. Maureen Gloria Johnson went to the Lower Port School in northern British Columbia in 1959. I went there with a bus. They load us all up on a bus and took us. And I remember my, my mom had a really hard time letting us kids go. And she had, she had a really hard time. She begged the priest, and the priest said that it was law that we had to go. And if we didn't go, then my parents would be in trouble. In the face of such coercion, parents often felt helpless and ashamed. Paul Dixon attended residential schools in Ontario and Quebec. Once he spoke to his father about his experience at the schools, according to Dixon, He got angry and said, I had no choice, you know. It really, it really hit me hard. I wasn't accusing him of anything, you know. I just wanted some explanations. He said, I, I will, I will go. I would go to, in jail. I will go in jail if I didn't let you go. When she was four or five, Linda Papasi McDonald was taken by a plane from her parents' home on Sydney Lake, Ontario. I looked outside. My mom was, you know, flailing her arms, and and I and she must have been crying. And I see my dad grabbing her, and I was wondering why why my mom was, you know, sh she was struggling. She told me many years later what happened, and she explained to me why we had to be sent away to residential school, and and I just couldn't get that memory out of my head. And I still remember to this day what what happened that day. And she told me like she was so hurt and. And I used to ask her, why did you let us go? Like, why didn't you stop them, you know? Why didn't you, you know, come and get us? And she told me we couldn't. They told us if we tried to do anything, like get you guys back, we'd get thrown in jail. So they didn't want to end up in jail because they still had babies at, at the cabin. Dorothy Ross recalled how unhappy her father was about sending his children to residential school. 
As we got older, I remember dad. I knew dad was already angry. He was angry at the school for taking us away, for taking myself and my siblings. He couldn't, couldn't do, he couldn't do anything to help us. Either, same thing with my mom, there's nothing I can do to help you. Albert Marshall hated his parents for sending him to the Shubenacadie Nova Scotia school. Many years later, he asked his brother what the family reaction had been to his being sent to school. He didn't answer me for a while, a long time. He says, Nobody said anything for days because my father was crying every day. Finally, my father told the family, I failed as a father. I couldn't protect my child. I just couldn't because you know what the Mounties, the priests, the Indian agents told me? They told me if I don't, if I resist too much, then they would take the other younger, younger brother and younger, younger children. And he says, there's not a choice. I could not say take them or take the three of them, but I couldn't say nothing. And I know I have to live with that. Jacko Anaviapik's parents opposed his being sent to the Pond Inlet Hostel in what is now Nunavut. When he started taking kids on the line to attend school, the RCMP boat would come pick us up. There's no doubt that our parents were intimidated by the police into letting us go. They were put in a position where they could not say no. Even though they did not want us to go, they were too afraid of the police, too afraid to stand up to the police. I'm one of the lucky ones because my father did say no when they wanted to take me. He told them he would bring me himself once the ice had formed. I was brought here after the children who had been rounded up by the boat had already started. At first year, my parents came several times to take me home, but they were refused by the area administrator. My sister told me that my parents were very sad at that time. Rather than be separated from their children, his parents moved to Pond Inlet. After two years had passed, my family decided to move to Pond because they knew I had to go to school. In some cases, parents reluctantly sent their children because the residential school represented their only educational option. Ellen Smith's father attended the Anglican residential school at Hay River in the Northwest Territories. She believes that his experiences at the school led him to oppose her being sent to residential school. However, her grandfather believed it was necessary that she get an education. My dad reluctantly let me go to school because my grandpa said that in the future she will help our people. She needs to go there. And that struggle occurred with my dad over the years, for 11 years that I went to residential school. But my grandpa was the one that said, they have to go. She has to go. She was sent to the Anglican school in Aklavik in 1953. She eventually attended three other residential schools. Some parents wanted their children to gain the knowledge they believed was needed to protect their community and culture. When Shirley Williams' father took her to catch the bus to the Spanish Ontario Girls' School, he bought her an ice cream and gave her four instructions. One was remember who you are. Do not forget your language. Whatever they do to you in there, be strong. And the fourth one, learn about the Indian Act and come back and teach me. So with those four things, he said that you don't know why I'm telling you this, but someday you will understand. One student who attended the Gordons Saskatchewan School recalled the ways in which the churches competed against one another to recruit students. When we look at the residential schools, you know, and the churches, we recognize, you know, at least I've seen it, you know, that we've had these two competing religions, the Anglican and the Catholic churches, both competing for our souls, it seemed. You know, I remember growing up on the reserve here when they were looking for our students. They were competing against each other. We were the prizes, you know, that they would gain if they won. I remember they, the Catholic priests coming out with, you know, used hockey equipment and telling us, you know, 
Come and come to our school. Come and play hockey for us. Come and play in our band. We got all kinds of bands here. We got trombones and trumpets and drums and all that kind of stuff. Use all this stuff to encourage us or to entice us to come to the Catholic school. Then on the other hand, the Anglicans, they would come out with what they called bale clothes. They would bring out a bunch of clothes in a bale, like a big, big bale. It was all used clothing and they'd give it to the woman on the reserve here. And the woman made blankets and stuff like that out of these old clothes. But that's the way they, uh, they competed for us as people. Some children wanted to go to school, at least initially. Leon Wallen, who attended the Roman Catholic residence in Fort Smith in the 1960s, said he looked forward to residential school. Because I wanted to learn, learn to talk English and learn, so I can learn both languages at the same time. He hated his first year at the residence, particularly the restrictions on speaking his own language. But he said, My mom and dad didn't listen to me, but they still sent me back. In other cases, missionaries convinced students of the benefits of going to school. Anthony Henry said that a priest named Father LaSalle convinced him to come to residential school at Kenora. According to Henry, his mother did not want him to go to residential school, but LaSalle, who spoke fluent Ojibwe, convinced him it would be beneficial. Places of Refuge While many of the students hated the idea of leaving their families, in some cases the schools could be looked upon as a refuge. The Indigenous culture at this time had already been largely affected and First Nation people in Canada had already been put onto reserves. Most of these reserves were affected largely by poverty, trauma, and alcoholism and were often in geographical locations where life off the land, which had been the norm for hundreds of generations, proved difficult to impossible. This resulted in an Indigenous population largely dependent on the Canadian government for sustenance a problem which in many areas continues to this day. The effects of the schools themselves were multi-generational, as a parent that had spent their childhood in a residential school had little to no experience in raising children of their own and were in many cases dealing with extreme trauma. In this sense, the schools could be viewed as a means of escape from poverty or worse. When stuck between a rock and a hard place, often a change of scenery, no matter the pretext, can be a welcome change and open new opportunities. Regardless, the traumatic effects of the schools would prove to be extreme in most cases. Poverty and the inability to feed and clothe their children forced some parents to send their children to residential school. When Ivan George was enrolled in the Mission British Columbia School, his father was a single parent with six children under the age of 14. When the time came to return to the school after his first summer holiday, Ivan told his father he did not wish to return. He says, you have to. I can't provide for you or nothing to feed you. Clothes on your back, education. So I went back and I said, oh, I better. Because you know where, what, what's going on, all that. But I stayed the whole year without running away. Cecilia Whitefield Big George said her mother was not able to support her family when they lived in Big Grassy in northwestern Ontario. She would go and clean, work for people, eh? like do their laundry and clean their floors and clean the house for them, and that's how she fed us. They'd give her food, eh? And then when the priests arrived, he told her, you know they'd be in a good place if they went to school. And so that's how it happened. I, my little sister, she was only four years old, so that's how we first got picked up. 
one former student whose grandparents had also attended residential school placed his daughter in residential school when she was 13. I didn't have a wife at that time, and I felt that was a good place for her. So I wasn't really fully aware of the, you know, the negative parts of, the parts negative, negativity of residential schools, because really, I guess, when I look at the residential school issue, you know, I saw, you know, physically, I guess, better than what I experienced at the reserve. On the reserve, I had a very abusive dad. My dad was abusive, physically abusive, and we lived in a little log cabin, and we didn't have regular meals. Ethel Johnson said she and her siblings were sent to the Shubenacadie school when her mother was diagnosed with tuberculosis. My father couldn't look after us. I was 10 years old. There was another one. There was five of us. And the three of us were old enough to go to residential school. Never even heard about it till then. So my father had to work and he had to maintain a house, fix our meals. He just couldn't do it. So I don't know where he found out or how this was possible, but we end up going over there anyway. This was in 46. Dorothy Jane Boileau attended the Fort Resolution Northwest Territories School after the death of her father. And they seemed to pick on orphans, you know. My father, I lost my father when I was, in 1949 we lost him. And I stayed here in a mission 11 and a half years. And I never went home for seven years. I had no nowhere to go, you know. My sisters were living in Yellowknife, but they were all, you know, they were all married and had children of their own. So, you know, I would, my sister Nora and I, we just stayed there, you know. Illness and family breakup meant that in some cases, children were raised by their grandparents. After Hazel Mary Anderson's parents separated in 1972, her grandmother took care of her and her two siblings. They lived on the Piapot Reserve in Saskatchewan until her grandmother was in her early 70s. At that time, the children were sent to residential school. Prior to going to the Shubenacadie School, one student was being cared for by his grandparents. I went there basically because I felt sorry for my grandparents who were trying to look after me and trying to keep, maintain, and they were struggling. One former Blue Quills Alberta student said, we have. At that time, there were six of us who were older, who were living at the house. But there were three others, younger ones, who were from another father, but they lived with us. So now in our family currently, we had 12. But the oldest ones, the six of us, had to see and witness a lot of a lot of violence, especially abuse with my mom and dad. We had two sisters and four or, or three brothers and myself, that's six. I was the youngest of the siblings of that bunch. But there was times when, you know, drinking would be to excess. So, so my mushroom and my cocoa would take us in to protect us from from the fighting and the pain and the struggles. There was, as far as I can recall, one day there was some lady or social worker that just came to our house at my cookum's place, Jenny's, and they told us we were going for a ride in a big fancy car. And of course, you know, we were poor. We didn't have any of that stuff. So we thought it would be kind of nice, but nobody told us where we were going. But all I could remember was my auntie, my cookum. We were at the, at the house and waving goodbye, and all I remember was just peeking out the window in the back, not understanding why, you know, grandma was crying. But we went, and they brought us to a big school, just out by the Saddle Lake Reserve. It was the Blue Quills School. And I was only five, so you know, I was the youngest of the six. In some cases, parents placed their children in the school to protect them from violence in the community. Both of Doreen Bernard's parents had attended the Shubenacadie School. My father spent 11 years in a residential school from 1929 to 1940. My mom spent around seven years there during the 1940s. Whatever would have made them think that it had changed, that it was better in 1960s, 
than it was when they were there. I don't know. But I could tell you that our lives outside the residential school was bad enough that she felt she was alone to make those decisions. That it was better for us to be there than with other family members, with our extended family. We were safer in her eyes to be there than at home. The Journey At its peak, the Canadian residential school system consisted of 139 schools spread from British Columbia to eastern Quebec. Canada is an immense country over 9,000 kilometers wide and 4,000 kilometers high, with over 600 First Nations, and because of this, the distance traveled to school could be extreme. Bearing in mind this started in and around the turn of the 20th century, Traveling great distances was far from comfortable or even safe. When we consider that these journeys were made by children as young as six years old, often with extremely limited supervision, we can start to get a feel for the magnitude of this undertaking from both an emotional and a physical perspective. Frederick Ernest Coe recalled that one morning there was a knock at his parents' door in Aklavik, Northwest Territories. Anglican minister Donald Webster and RCMP officers at the door. They're asking for me and telling me to pack up because I had to go. I'll pack up a few little things, no suitcases. My hunting bag is so kind of dirty. Throw whatever stuff you had in it and you go. And I didn't get to say goodbye to my dad or my brother Alan. I didn't get to pet my dogs or nothing. You know, we're going. Marched over to Frankie's house, which was just half a block away, and picked him up, and then we were marched to the plane, just like we're criminals, you know, marching to this policeman to get on the plane. And that was my experience leaving Aklavik. It was a pretty monumental point in my life, very dramatic, I guess. You don't realize until after, because those times, you just did what the people in charge told you to do. Howard Stacy Jones said he was taken without his parents' knowledge from a public school in Port Renfrew, British Columbia, to the Cooper Island School. I was kidnapped from Port Renfrew's elementary school when I was around six years old. This happened right in the elementary schoolyard. And my auntie witnessed this, and another non-native witnessed this, and they are still alive as I speak. These are two witnesses trying, saw me fighting, trying to get away with from, from the two RCMP officers that threw me in the back seat of the car and drove off with me. My mom didn't know where I was for three days, frantically stressed out and worried about where I was, and she finally found out that I was in Cooper Island Residential School. For many residential school students, the school year started in a long ride in the back of a school-owned farm truck. Shirley Leon attended the Kamloops British Columbia School in the 1940s. She described her first memory of residential school as Seeing the cattle trucks come onto the reserve and scoop up the kids to go and seeing my cousins cry and then and they were put on these trucks and hauled off and we didn't know where and my grandmother and mother hiding us under the bed and when the, the federal health nurse or the Indian agent would try to come into the house, my grandmother would club them with her cane. The day she left for the Lestock, Saskatchewan school, Marlene Casey's parents drove her into the town of Wadena. There was a big truck there. It had a back door and the truck was full of kids and there was no windows on that truck. It was dark in there. And that's where we were put. There was a bunch of kids there from up north, Yellow Quill, Keniston and my reserve. And all you hear was yelling and kids were fighting in there and some were crying. And we were all falling down on the floor because there was no place to sit. We were standing up. And it seemed like such a long time to get there. 
Rick Gilbert's first experience with residential schooling came when his older siblings were sent away to school. I remember just directly outside of the house there was a cattle truck parked there. They were loading kids on the back of this cattle truck. And that's how they were taking my, well, I'm going to call them my brother and sister. They were taking my brother and sister away in this cattle truck to the mission. I didn't know then that that's what they were doing, but that's what happened. Alma Scott was taken to the Fort Alexander Manitoba school when she was five years old. We got taken away by a big truck. I can still remember my mom and dad looking at us, and they were really, really sad looking. My dad's shoulders were just hunched, and he, to me, it looked like his spirit was broken. I didn't have the words at five for that, but I do now. I just remember feeling really sad, and I was in this truck full of other kids who were crying, and, and so I cried with them. Leona Bird was six when she was sent to the Prince Albert Saskatchewan school. And then we seen this army-covered wagon truck, army truck, outside the place. And as we were walking towards it, kids were herded into there like cattle into the army truck. And in the far distance, I seen my mother with my little sister. I went running to her, and she says, Leona. She was crying, and I was so scared. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know what was happening. My sister didn't cry because she didn't understand what we, we were, what's going to happen to us. Anyway, it was time for me and her to go, and she, when we got in that truck, she just held me, pinched me, and held me on my skirt. Mama, mama, mama. And then my mother couldn't do nothing. She just stood there weeping. And then I took my little sister and tried to make her calm down. I just told her, we're going bye-bye. We're going somewhere for a little while. Well, nobody told us how long we were going to be gone. It's just like we were going to go into this big truck, and that's how... That's how it all started. Sam Ross recalled putting up a fight when the Indian agent came to his family's home in northern Manitoba to take him to residential school in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan. I remember hiding under the bed there. They pulled us out from under the bed, me and my younger brother. We ran, you know. We cried a lot, and but that didn't help better. They took us out. They took us out to the truck, all four of us. My other two brothers walked to the truck. But me and my late younger brother, we fought all the way, right up, right to the station, train station, the uh, CNR station. As in Sam Ross's case, the truck ride was sometimes followed by a train ride. In the 1950s, Benjamin Joseph traveled by bus and train to the Shubenacadie School. And I don't know who were there anyway. There was a police officer and two people told my father that we're taking your children to the better place. My dad didn't understand because my dad was getting sick. He had asthma. He didn't understand then and he agreed with them anyway. He agreed with the people that would take us, all my brothers and my sisters, to the place that I don't know. So about a couple of days later, a bus came into our home and told us, get on the bus. I don't know, could be an Indian agent in the RCMP. Told us, go on the bus, go on the bus, we take you to a better place. So we had to agree with them because I didn't understand as a young boy. I had to listen to what they said because we listened to our dad. We listened to him because he knows what's best for us. So we went on the bus, so they picked every child in our community, in my reserve. Picked every child, put them on the bus. Sent us to a train station at Grand Narrows that morning about around 7.30, around there, I think. And every child they put on didn't say anything. We put them on the bus and through Grand Narrows. Then we waited there. We didn't have no food. We didn't have no clothes to take with us. We just got on the bus and go. So that morning we heard the, told my brothers we had to sit over here and wait for the train to come. So we heard a train. We heard a whistle and we said, my brother said, oh, that's a train coming to pick us up. I said, okay, you know. When the train came, they put us on. Indian agents put us on. The RCMP put us on the train. Told us to sit over here. 
So it doesn't matter. So we left from Grand Narrows. Every station we stopped at, there was children, native children, that had long hair when I looked out the window. And I went, wow, there's more children going on the train. Probably they're going the same way as I'm going. But at that time, it didn't matter to me. So every station we stopped, there was native children, girls and boys. And there was RCMP and an Indian agent lining them up, put them on the train, put them on the seats. No one's talking about anything. I didn't know them. Every station, and by the time we got to Truro, there was full of native people, native children on the train. Wow, there was a whole bunch of us. I had long hair, you know, I had no clothes to take with them. So we didn't know, we didn't understand. But we got to Truro, so we changed trains and then the conductor, he says, when we get to the point where we went, the conductor said, last stop for Shubhanakaiti, last stop, get ready. So we were driving and we didn't take that long. So we got all the children, all the girls on one side and all the boys on one side. We didn't understand nothing. When the train came so far, I think it would be around 12 o'clock or between 12 o'clock or 12.30. We got to our destination and the conductor was saying, Shubhanakaiti, Shubhanakaiti, next stop. So he was saying that. So we all stopped and the Indian agent was sitting in the front there. He said, okay guys, get ready. Larry Beardy had a strong memory of the first train trip that took him from Churchill, Manitoba to the Anglican Residential School in Dolphin, Manitoba, a journey of 1,200 kilometers. I think it was two days and one whole day of travel on a train to Dauphin. So it was quite a, was quite a ride. When we boarded the train, I was very excited. It's like going on a journey, going for a, a travel. It's not my first time going on a train, but I was going alone. I was going with my sister and my older siblings. And, and the train ride was okay for the first half hour or so. Then I realized I was alone. My mother was not there. Like the rest of the children, there was a lot of crying on that train. At every stop, if you understand the Canadian National Railway, Families lived in sections every 20, 15 miles, and children would get on the train, and then there'd be more crying, and everybody started crying all the way to Dauphin. That's how it was. So there was a lot of tears. That train, I want to call that train the train of tears, and a lot of anger, a lot of frustration. I did that for several years. Emily Kamach was sent from York Landing in northern Manitoba to the Gordons School in Saskatchewan. When she was put on the train that was to take her there, she did not know she was being sent to school. I didn't know I was going away to school. I thought I was just going for a train ride, and I was just excited to go. My sisters and my brothers were on the train too, and I felt like I have family with me, but I didn't understand why my parents didn't come on with us. They were just on the side of the railway there, and they were waving at us as the train was moving away. And I remember asking one of the kids from back home, how come our parents aren't coming? And then he said, that girl said, they can't come because we're going to school. And I was talking to her in Cree, and I said, well, I don't want to go to school. I'd rather stay home and stay with my parents. And she says, she told me, no, we can't. We have to go and get our education. And then at night, as we were traveling along, I got really lonesome. Because her siblings were going to the Anglican school in Dauphin, they got off there. Emily stayed on the train. We were on the train, I'd say, like three days to get to Saskatchewan. And when we got there, three of my cousins were with me. Those were the only ones I knew, three boys. There's Billy, Gordon, and Nelson. And I was the only girl from my hometown. Many students whose parents belonged to the United Church were sent from northern British Columbia to residential school in Edmonton because there was no United Church residential school closer to where they lived. Sphenia Jones' journey to residential school started from Haida Gwaii, also known as the Queen Charlotte Islands, off the coast of British Columbia. And I went on a boat first from Haida Gwaii. There was really lots of Haidas. 
that were going to Edmonton at that time, and some Skidigate, as well as Masset. And we got on a really big boat. They used to have a, they used to call it a steamer. They used to bring groceries and stuff like that, maybe once a year or twice a year to Haraiguay. That's what they put us on. And then we got off the boat in Prince Rupert, and then they started hauling us on a train there. The train station building is still there in Rupert, where we ha all had to wait. There was really lots of us, <clears throat> and I don't remember that month, what month it was, or anything like that, but we used to have to do stops along the way and picked up more native children. And we were on a train, gee, for about four days, I think, something like that. And the more people they picked up, the more squished we all became in, inside this, the train, and we were packed in like a bunch of sardines. There was kids laying around on the floor all along in, in where the walkway was supposed to be, and I could hear really lots of crying all the time, crying, crying, crying. I could hear a baby crying about the second day, so I started looking. I found this little one in the corner. There was a whole bunch of kids around. I don't know if they were alive or whatever, you know? I picked him up anyway, and I remember packing him around. I lost the space that I was sitting at, so I was walking around. I was lucky I had a coat. I took my coat off. I remember holding him, sitting, holding him, looking at his face. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink. I couldn't give him anything. Students from remote communities often were taken to residential school by small airplanes. At the end of the summer in 1957, a plane that was normally used to transport fish landed on the water at Co-op Point on Reindeer Lake in northern Saskatchewan. John B. Custer recalled the roundup. And all of a sudden, I seen this priest coming and this RCMP, and they told me, let's go for a walk. So I went, walked down to the fish plane, and this is where they, they threw me in without the consent of my grandparents. There was already a bunch of kids there. There's about at least 25 to 30 kids. That's at the very young age of seven years old. I remember this very well. This, the fish, the fish plane was, it had a very strong smell of fish, and he half-assed washed that plane. And it was, there was still this fish slime in there, in that plane. And there was a whole bunch of kids there. And I was just wondering, what am I doing on in this plane? Most of the kids were crying. And I could see their parents on the shoreline waving goodbye. And most of them were crying. Florence Horasi was taken to the Fort Providence Northwest Territory School in a small airplane. On its way to the school, the plane stopped at a number of small communities to pick up students. And then we got to, there's another place that we stop at. There's another, this young boy got on the plane there, had a lot, a lot of crying. There's a lot of kids in the plane. Some of them were sitting on the floor of the plane. It was, it was just full. The plane took off. There's about six or seven older ones. Didn't cry, but I saw tears come right out of their eyes. Everybody else was crying. There's a whole plane crying. I wanted to cry too, because my brother was crying. But I held my tears back and held him. When we got to Providence, my brother was scared. We got off the plane, there was nuns waiting for us on the shore. Brothers, fathers, priests, he, he was scared so he grabbed hold of my hand. He was holding my hand. We don't have no luggage or no, no clothes, just what we had on, just, just what we had on. And we walk up the hill to the top of the hill and my brother was so scared. He was just holding onto my hand so tight. And then top of the hill, the priest came and he told me he's got to go this way. And and then the sister came over to me and told me, you gotta go this way. They're trying to break our hands apart, but he wouldn't let go of my hand holding. And the priest was holding his hand and the sister was holding my hand. 
They broke our heart, our hands apart like that. Joe Crimidjoir was taken to the Chesterfield Inlet School in the Northwest Territories in 1957. My mother was on the beach when I was boarding the plane. The few clothes that I had, maybe one pair of pants, maybe a sock that my mother had put into her flower sack. And I know that she started walking home not even bothering to look at me. And today I think maybe she had tears in her eyes. Maybe she was crying. In the Northwest Territories, students often were taken to school by boat. Albert Elias was sent to the Anglican school in Aklavik in 1952. So in 1952, we were sent away. Those days, there's, you know, there's no airplanes like we have now. So the Anglican mission schooner, a small boat, came down to Took and we were boarded. We were, you know, we got on the boat, and all excited and waving, and, and we left Took. And, we were, and then we traveled a ways along the, along the way to Aklavik was camps, hunting camps, fishing camps. And we stopped at those places and picked up students as we went along. At one stop, all the children got off the boat. When it was time to get back on the boat, the boy walking ahead of Albert decided to run away. Just before he stepped on the walk plank, he dashed to one side and he ran away. He ran away. And the Anglican missionary there, he ran after him and caught him. And, and I saw for the first time how somebody could be so rough to a small child and carry that boy like a ragdoll up to the boat. And I asked myself there, the fear, fear came to my being, you know, and I sensed fear like I had never felt it before. I said, what have I got myself into, you know? Before I even reached Aklavik, I started seeing violence, you know, which I really never saw before. And that was, to me, it always, you know, it, it was always in my memory. So the first trauma, I guess. Sam Kutanek was 12 years old when he was taken to the pond in that school in what is now Nunavut. The boat they used to bring us here is still there down by Uliak School. That's the boat that picked me up from our outpost camp. It was the RCMP, the area administrator, and two women. A special constable lifted me by my shoulders and put me in the boat so that I could go to school. They ignored my cries for my mother. I remember as the boat took us away, I kept my eyes on my parents' tent until I couldn't see it anymore. That moment was the most painful thing I ever experienced in my life. Arriving at school. The first day of school can be a stressful and overwhelming day for a child. Even if you don't have children of your own that you've seen a little stressed or upset about heading back to school after the summer break, you can probably remember some time in the not-so-distant past that you had these feelings of apprehension towards school life yourself. I was certainly no fan of school. I hated the early mornings and how it stole away the best hours of the day. The best hours of the day seemed somewhat paltry in comparison to the best years of a child's life. What bonds are interrupted when a young child is taken from the family home and settled into government and or religious institutions? While First Nations children in Canada are not the first nor the last in history to be raised out of the family home, the fact that they did so in places that had little to no knowledge of their cultures, history, or languages was especially destructive. In most cases, what little was known about indigenous culture and spirituality was looked down upon as heathenistic devil worship. This is evidenced by the banning of indigenous religious ceremonies like the potlatch and the sun dance and the refusal to allow students in residential schools to communicate with one another in their native languages. Nellie Ningwantz was raised in Hudson, Ontario and went to the Sioux Lookout Ontario School in the 50s and 60s. Her parents enrolled her in the school at the government's insistence. She told her mother she did not want to go. The day, the day came where we, 
We were all bussed out from Hudson. My mother told me to pack my stuff, a little bit of what I needed, what I wanted. I remember I had a little doll that my dad had given me for a Christmas present. And I had a little trunk where I made my own doll clothes. I started sewing when I was nine years old. My mom taught us all this though, sewing. So I used to make my own doll clothes. I packed those up, what I wanted. I guess I had mixed feelings. I was kind of excited to go away to, to go to school. Um, my mom tried to make it feel comfortable for me and I know it was hard for her and hard for me. But when the time we were ready to leave, they had a bus and there was lots of people with their kids waiting to leave. And I made sure I, I was the last one to board the bus because I didn't want to go. I remember hugging my mom, begging her, getting on the bus, waving at them as they were going, pulling away. I don't remember how long the ride was from Hudson to Pelican at the time, but it seemed like a long ride. When we arrived there, again, I was, I made sure I was the last one to get off the bus. And when I arrived there, a guy standing at the bottom there helping all the students to get on the bus, reaching out his hand like this. I didn't even want to touch him. I didn't even want to get off. I'm hanging to the bar and I didn't want to get off. To me, he looked so ugly. He was dark, short, and he was trying to coax me to come down the stairs and to help me get off the bus. I hang on to the bus and they had to force me and pull me down to get off the bus. The next three days, I guess, was sort of like it was like floating. I remember crying, then calming down for a while, then crying again. When we arrived, we had to register that we had arrived. Then they took us to cut our hair. The next thing was to get our clothes. They gave us, they gave us two pairs of jeans, two pairs of t-shirts, two church dresses. They were beautiful dresses, two pairs of shoes, two pairs of socks, two pairs of everything. We had a number, they gave us a number and that number was tied in our, in all our clothes, our garments, our jackets, everything was numbered. After that, we were told to be in the, to go in the shower, at least 15, 15 of us girls all in one shower. We were told to strip down and with all the other girls and that was not a comfortable feeling. And for me, I guess it was violating my, my privacy. I'd, I didn't even want to look at anybody else. It was hard. After that, they gave us our toothbrushes to brush our teeth and they asked us to put our hands out and they put some white dry powder stuff on our hands. I didn't know what it was, I smelt it, but now today I know it was baking soda. I didn't realize what it was then. Campbell Papakosh had been raised by his grandfather. When his grandfather died in 1946, Papakosh was apprehended by the missionaries and taken to residential school. When I was taken to this residential school, you know I experienced a foreign way of life that I really didn't understand. I was taken into this big building that would become the, de the detention of my life and the fear of life. When I was taken to that residential school, you know I see these ladies, you know, so stoical looking, passionateless. And they wore these robes that I've never seen women wear before. They only showed their forehead and their eyes and the bottom of their face and their hands. Now to me that is very fearful because, you know, there wasn't any kind of passion and I could see, you know, I could, I could see it in their eyes. When I was taken to this residential school, I was taken into the infirmary, but before I entered the infirmary, you know, I looked around this big, huge building, and I see all these crosses all over the walls. I look at those crosses, and I see a man hanging on that cross. I didn't recognize who this man was, and this man seemed dead and passionateless on that cross. I didn't know who this man was on that cross. Then I was taken to the infirmary, and there, you know, I was stripped of my clothes, the clothes that I came to residential school with, you know, my moccasins, and I had nice, beautiful, long hair. And they were neatly braided by my mother before I went to residential school, before I was apprehended by the residential school missionaries. 
and after I was taken there, they took off my clothes, and then they deloused me. I didn't know what was happening, but I learned about it later, that they were delousing me. The dirty, no-good-for-nothing savages lousy. And then they cut off my beautiful hair. You know, and my hair, my hair represents such a spiritual significance of my life and my spirit. And they did not know, you know, what they were doing to me. You know, and I cried. And I see them throw my hair into a garbage can, my long, beautiful braids. Then after they deloused me, then I was thrown into the shower, you know, to go wash all that cursing on my body and on my head. And I was shaved, bald-headed. Then after I had to shower, they gave me these clothes that didn't fit. They gave me these shoes that didn't fit, and they all had numbers on them. And after the shower, then I was taken up to the dormitory. And when I went to, when I went was taken up to this dormitory, I seen many beds up there, all lined up so neatly, and all the beds made so neatly. And they gave me a pillow, they gave me blankets, they gave me sheets to make my bed. Lo and behold, you know, I did not know how to make that bed because I came from a place of buffalo ropes and deer hides and rabbit skins to cover with. No such thing as a pillow. Marth Basile Cuckoo recalled feeling a chill on first seeing the Point Blue Quebec school. It was something like a gray day. It was a day without sunshine. It was, it was the impression that I had. But I was only six years old then. While the nuns separated us, my brothers then my uncles, and I no longer understood then that that was a period there of suffering, nights of crying, we all gathered in a corner, meaning that we all, that we came together, and there we cried. Our nights were like that. Louise Large could not speak any English when her grandmother took her to the Blue Quills Alberta school in the early 1960s. My grandma and I got into this black car and I was kind of excited and I was looking at the window and and look I'd never rode in a car before or I might have but this was a strange person I went to we drove into Blue Quills and it was a big building and I was in awe with the way it looked and I was okay because I had my grandma with me and we got off and we went up the stairs and that was okay I was hanging on to my grandmother and I was going into this strange place and we walked up the stairs into the building and down the hallway, going to the left, and there was a room there, and two nuns came. As was often the case, she was not used to seeing nuns dressed in religious habits. I didn't know they were nuns. I don't know why they were dressed the way they were. They had long black skirts, dresses, and at that time they looked weird. They had these little weird hats and a veil, kind of like a black bridesmaid or something, and they were all smiling at me. She was shocked to discover that she was going to be left at the school. The nuns had to hold Louise tight to stop her from trying to leave with her grandmother. And I wasn't aware at the time that my grandma was going to leave me there. I'm not ever sure how she told me, but they started holding me and my grandmother left. And I started fighting them because I didn't want my grandma to leave me. And, and I started screaming and crying and crying. And it must have been about... I don't know, when I look back, probably long enough to know that my grandma was long gone. They let me go and they started yelling at me to shut up or I don't know. They had a real mean tone of voice. It must have been about, when I think about it, it was in the morning and I just screamed and screamed for hours. It seemed like for hours. They all ran down the water's edge to get on the float plane that would take them to school. On their arrival, they were taken to the school by the same truck that was used to haul garbage to the local refuse site. From that point on, the experience was much more somber. 
And I can still recall today the, the quiet, the quiet and all the sadness, the atmosphere. And as we entered the big stone building, the excitement in the morning was gone and everybody was quiet because the senior students that had been there before knew the rules and us newcomers were just beginning to see and we were little, we were young. I remember how they took our clothes, the clothes that we wore when we left. And they also cut our hair. We had short hair from there on and they put a chemical on our hair, which was some kind of white powder. Linda Head was initially excited about the prospect of a plane trip that would take her to the Prince Albert Saskatchewan school. My dad kissed me and up I went. I didn't care because <laughs> this was something new for me. The plane landed on the Saskatchewan River. There was a, a car waiting for us or the truck. But I got into the car and the boys were in the truck like an army, an army truck. They stood outside the outside, you know, at the back, not inside. They gave us, told us which dorm to, which dorm to go to. And there was a person standing, but the kids were, you know, lining up. And this person took me to the line. And when the line was full, I guess when we were, they took us to the dorm. They had our numbers and a, and a bed number. And she told us to settle down. Well, I wasn't understanding this because it was English, but I followed, you know, watch, just watch everybody. And she took my hand and guided me to the bed. And the number showed me what number I was, number four. And we had to find number four. So that's how it was then. My stuff, I had to set it down. Then I... I was under under the bed, not the higher up. I had the lower bed. So I was just laying around there. The music was loud, the radio. Everybody was talking in Cree, some of them in Cree, some of them in English, well, a little bit of English. And my cousins, we were in together, some of them, some of us at the same age. So they came over and talked to me. I said, well, here we are. Here I was missing home already. Gilles Petiquet, who attended the Point Bleu, Quebec school was shocked by the numbering system at the school. I remember that the first number that I had at the residential school was 95. I had that number, 95, for a year. The second number was 4. I had it for a longer period of time. The third number was 56. I also kept it for a long time. We walked with the numbers on us. Mary Korshin grew up on the Fort Alexander Reserve in Manitoba. Her parents' home was just a five-minute walk away from the Fort Alexander boarding school. One morning, my mom woke us up and said we were going to school that day. And then she takes out new clothes that she had bought us. And I was just so happy, so over the moon. And she was very, very quiet. And she was dressing us up and she didn't say too much. She didn't say, oh, I'll see you and all of that. She just said, she just dressed us up with, with no comment. And, and then we left, we left for the school. When the family reached the school, they were greeted by a nun. Mary's brother became frightened. Mary told him to behave himself. She then turned around to say goodbye to her mother, but she was gone. Her mother had gone to residential school as a child. She could not bear to talk to her children and prepare her children to go to residential school. It was just too, too much for her. Korshin said that on that day her life changed. It began ten years of the most miserable part of my life here on here in the world. Roy Denny was perplexed and frightened by the clothing that the priests and sisters wore at the Shibanakati school. And we were greeted by this man dressed in black with a long gown. That was the priest come to find later. 
the nuns with their black black outfits with the white collar and the white white collar and like a breastplate of white and their freaky looking hats that were I don't know I couldn't know what they reminded me of I didn't see first time I ever seen nuns and priests and they and they were speaking to me and I couldn't understand them he had not fully understood that his father was going to be leaving him at the school so when my father left I tried to stop him I tried I tried to go you know tried to go with him but he said no you got to stay that was real hard Archie Hyacinth said that he was unprepared for life in the Catholic school in Kenora. It was almost like we were, you know, captured or taken to another form of home. Like I said, nobody really explained to us, as if we were just being taken away from our home and our parents. We were detached, I guess, from our home and our parents. And it's scary when you when you first think think about it as a child, because you never had that separation in your lifetime before that. So that was the, I think that's when the trauma started for me being separated from my sister, from my parents, and from our, our home. We were no longer free. It was like being, you know, taken to a strange land, even though it was our, our you know, it was our land, as I understood later on. Doreen Bernard was only four and a half years old when she enrolled in the Shubenacadie Residential School. She had thought that the family was simply taking her older siblings back to the school after a holiday. I remember that day. We went down there to take my sister and brother back. My father and mom went in to talk to the priest, but they were making plans to leave me behind. But I didn't know that. So I went on the girl's side with my sister and she told me after a couple hours went by that they had already left. I would say it was pretty difficult to feel that abandoned at four and a half years old. But I had my sister, my older sister Karen, she took care of me the best way that she could. When parents brought their children to the school themselves, the moment of departure was often heartbreaking. Ida Ralph Kisses could recall her father crying in the chapel when she and her siblings were sent to residential school. He was crying in that one of the these women in black dresses, I later learned they were sisters. They called them nuns, the oblate nuns. Later, many years after I learned what their title was, and the one that spoke our language to him We'll keep your little girls. We'll raise them. And then my father started to cry. Viteline Elsie Jenner resisted being sent to school. I didn't want to go to the residential school. I didn't realize what I was going to come up against upon being there. I resisted. I cried and I fought with my mom. My mom was the one that took us there and dragged, actually just about dragged me there because of my resistance. Not wanting, I hung on to everything that was in the way, resisting. The separation at the Fort Chippewan School in Northern Alberta was traumatic. And so when I went upon, when we went into the residential school, it was in the parlor and there was a nun that was receiving the students that were going into the residential school. And I, you know, like I hung on to my mom as tight as I can. And what I remember was she had taken my hand and, and what she did, what my mom did, I don't remember the rest of my siblings. It's just like I kind of blocked it out. Because of the traumatic already, because that was traumatic already for me, and as it was, being taken there, you know? And this great big building looked so strange and foreign to me, and so she took my hand and forcefully put my hand in the nun's hand. And the nun grabbed it so I wouldn't run away, so she grabbed it, and I was screaming and hollering, and in my language I said, Mama, Mama, and in English it was, Mom, Mom, don't leave me, because that's all I knew was to speak Cree. So the nun took us, and mom, I, I turned around, and my mom was walking away. I didn't realize, I guess, that she was also crying. 
Lily Bruce's parents were in tears when they left her and her brother at the Alert Bay British Columbia School. And our parents talked to the principal and, and then mom was in tears. And I remember the last time she was in tears was when my brother Jimmy was put in that school. And her and dad went through those double doors in the front and the principal and his wife were saying that they were going to take good care of us, that they were going to treat us like they were our new parents and not to worry about us and just bringing our hopes up. And so mom and dad left and I grabbed my brother and my brother held me. We just started crying. We were hurt because mom and dad left us there. Margaret Simpson attended the Fort Chippewan School in the 1950s. She was initially excited to be going to residential school because she would be going with her brother, George. I was happy I was going with him and my, my dad took us and they were walking to this to this big orange building it was in and we got there and I was so happy because I was going in here with George and I was going to be with him but you know this was far as it was going to go once we made it in there. He went one way and I was calling him and this other nun took me the other way so we separated right there. Right from there I was wondering well, what's happening here? I was so lost, I was so lost. They brought me downstairs and then I looked and all of a sudden I seen my dad passing on the other side of the fence. He was walking. I just went running. I seen the door over there and I went running and I was gonna go see my dad over there. They stopped me and, and I was crying and I was telling my dad to come and he didn't hear me. And I was wondering, what is happening? I, I don't even know. The rest of a new student's first day is often remembered as being invasive, humiliating, and dehumanizing. Her first day at the Catholic school in Kenora left Linda Papase McDonald frightened and distressed. And I had, I must have had long hair, like long, long hair, like, and my brothers, even my brother had long hair, and he looked like a little girl, and they took us into this, it was like a greeting area, we went in there, and they, they kind of counted us, me and my siblings. And I was hanging on to my sister and she told me not to cry, so, so don't cry, you know, you just listen. She was trying to tell me and I was crying and of course me and my sisters were crying. There's three of us, we're, we're just a, a year apart. Me, Barbara and Sandy were standing there crying. She was telling us not to cry and, and just do what we had to do. And I remember having, watching my brother being like taken away, my older brother Marcel. They took him and he had, he had long hair also. And we were taken upstairs and they gave us some clothing and they put numbers on our clothes. I remember there's little tags in the back. They put numbers and they told us that was your number. Well, I can't remember my number. And we seen the nuns, they had these big black outfits and they were scary looking, I remember. And of course they weren't really, they looked really, I don't know, mean, I guess. And, and we, they took us upstairs, I remember that. And they gave us these clothes, different clothes. And they took us to another room and they kind of like, and they took our old clothes and they took that and they made us take a bath or a shower. I think it was a bath at that time. After we came out and they washed our hair and I don't know, they kind of put some kind of thing on our hair, like, you know, our heads and they're checking our hair and stuff like that. And then they took us to this chair and they put a white cloth over our shoulders and they started cutting our hair and, you know, they cut real straight bangs and real short hair, like, it was real straight haircuts. I didn't like the fact that they cut off all our hair. And same with my brother, they had they cut off all of most of his hair and they had a he had a brush cut like 
when Emily Camacho arrived at Gordon's Saskatchewan School from York Landing in northern Manitoba, her hair was treated with a white powder and then cut. And we had our clothes that we went there with, even though we didn't have much. We had our own clothes, but they took those away from us, and we had to wear the clothes that they gave us, some sort of clothes that we had to wear. Verna Kirkness attended the Dauphine Manitoba Residential School. On arrival at that school, after a lengthy train trip, she said she was stripped of all her clothing. They didn't tell me that they were going to do that, and they poured something on my head. I don't know what it was, but it didn't smell too good. To this day, I don't know what it is, but from my understanding, from people explaining it to me, it was coal oil or some, some kind of oil that they poured that on my head, and, and then they cut off my hair really, really short. And then and when we, we sat, I remember sitting, I don't know, it's... It looked like a picnic table. It was in the corner. I think it was in a corner, and I sat there. I was looking around, and I was looking for my sister. And then I, and then I think we were given a donut or some kind of pastry, and then we were sent to bed. And I remember my first bed. It was right by the door. And then as when you walk in, it was on your right-hand side, and I was on the top bunk, the, the first bunk bed. I was on the top bunk, and that's my first, my very first night there. At the Blue Quills School, Alice Quitty and the other recently arrived students were told they were to be given a bath. I had never been naked in front of anybody ever before, except my mom would give us a bath in, in the bathtub at home in a, in a round tub. You know the old round tubs that they had, the steel tubs? That's the kind of, you know. And so that was hard too. They told us before when we went down to the bathroom, we all had to strip and they put this nasty smelling stuff in our hair for bugs, they said, if we had brought bug, any bugs with us. So they put all that stuff and some kind of powder that smelled really bad. And, and then we, were, we had to take off all our clothes and, and go in in the showers together. On her arrival at the Alberni British Columbia School, Lily Bruce was separated from her brother and taken to the girls' dormitory. I had to take a bath and it was late at night and I kept crying and she was calling me a crybaby and just kept yelling at me and said if I woke up anybody I was in deep trouble and, and if your mother and dad really cared about you they wouldn't have left you here. And then she started pulling my long hair checking for lights. <laughs> After she checked my hair and shampooed my hair I had to have vinegar put in there and being yanked around in that tub too had to wash every part of my body or else they were going to do it and I didn't want I didn't want them to touch me. Helen Harry's hair was cut on her arrival at the Williams Lake British Columbia School. And I remember not wanting to cut my hair because I remember my mom had really long hair down to her waist and she never ever cut it and she never cut our hair either. All the girls had really long hair in our family and I kept saying that I didn't want to cut my hair. But they just sat me on the chair and they just got scissors and they just grabbed my hair and they just cut it. And they had this big bucket there and they just threw everybody's hair in that bucket. I remember going back to the dorm and there was other girls that were upset about their hair. They were mad and crying that they had to get their hair cut. And then when this was all done, we were made to wash our hair out with some kind of shampoo and I just remember it smelling really awful. The smell was bad. And this is, I think it had something to do with delousing people. I'm not sure. In 1985, Ricky Kakagakamuk, 
was one of a group of children who were owned to the Poplar Hill, Ontario School. On arrival, the boys and girls were separated and marched to their dormitories. When we got there, there's staff people there, Mennonite men. They're holding towels. So we just put our luggage down on the floor there, and they told us, wet your hair. I had long hair, like I was an Aboriginal teenager. I grew with long hair. So they told us, wash your hair. Then they had this big bottle of chemical. I didn't know what it was. It looked like something you see in a science lab. So they were pumping that thing into your our hand and put it all over your head, they said. So it will, this will kill all the bugs on your head. Just right away, they assumed that all of us had bugs, Aboriginal. I didn't like that. I was already a teenager. I was already taking care of myself. I knew I didn't have bugs. But right away, they assumed I did because I'm Aboriginal. So after we washed our hair, everybody went through that. Then we went to the next room. And that's when I see a bunch of hair all over the floor. I see a guy standing over there with those clippers. The little buzz was buzzing students. I kept on moving back. There was a line there. I kept going back. I didn't want to go. But it came down to the end. I had no choice. Because everybody was already, had already gone th- going through it. I couldn't go behind anybody no more. So I made a big fuss about it, but couldn't stop them. It was a rule. So they, they gave me a brush, and they gave us one comb, too. And told us, this is your comb. You take care of it. As a child, Bernice Jacks had been proud of her long hair. My mom used to braid it and French braid it and brush it, and my sister would look after my hair and do it. But on her arrival at residential school in the Northwest Territories, a staff member sat her on a stool and cut her hair. And I sat there, and I could, I could hear, I could see my hair falling, and I couldn't do nothing. And I was so afraid, my mom, I wasn't thinking about myself, I was thinking about my mom. I say, mom's going to be really mad and June is going to be angry and it's going to be all my fault. Victoria Boucher-Grant was shocked by the treatment she received upon enrollment at the Fort William, Ontario school. And they, they took my braids and they chopped my, they didn't even cut it, they just, I mean, style it or anything, they just took the braid like that and just cut it straight across. And I remember just crying and crying because it was almost like being violated, you know? Like when you're, when I think about it now, it was a violation, like your your braids got cut and it, I don't know how many years that you spent growing this long hair. Elaine DeRocher found the first day at the Roman Catholic school in Comsac, Saskatchewan to be overwhelming. As soon we entered the residential school, the abuse started right away. We were stripped, taken up to a dormitory, stripped. Our hair was sprayed. They put Oxfords on our feet, because I know my feet hurt. They put dresses on us and were made. We were always praying. We were always on our knees. We were told we were little stupid savages and that they had to educate us. Brian Ray said he and the other boys at the Fort Francis, Ontario school were given a physical inspection by female staff. You know, to get stripped like that by a female, you know, you don't even know because, you know, it was embarrassing, humiliating. And, and then she'd have this, you know, look or whatever it was in her eyes, eh? you know. And then she would comment about your private parts and stuff like that, eh? like say, oh, what a cute peanut, you know. Just, you know, kind of rub you down there and then you, you know, just, just her eyes, the way she looked. That kind of made me feel, feel all, you know, dirty. And, you know, just, I don't know, just make me feel awful, I guess, because she was doing that. And then the others, you know, the other kids were there, you know, just laughing. That was, a, that was common. So I think that that was the first time I ever felt humiliated about my sexuality. 
Juliana Alexander found the treatment she received upon arrival at the Kamloops British Columbia School demeaning. But they made us strip down naked and I felt embarrassed, you know. They didn't, you know, I just thought it was inappropriate, you know. People standing there watching us, scrubbing us and everything, and then powdering us down with whatever it was that they powdered us with. And, and our hairs were covered, you know, really scrubbed out. And then they poured, I guess, what they call now coal oil or whatever that was, like some kind of turpentine. I'm not sure what it was, but anyways, it really stunk. On their arrival at residential school, students often were required to exchange the clothes they were wearing for school-supplied clothing. This could mean the loss of homemade clothing that was of particular value and meaning to the students. Murray Crow said his clothes from home were taken and burned at the school that he attended in northwestern Ontario. When Wilbur Abraham's mother sent him to the Alert Bay School, she outfitted him in brand new clothes. When he arrived at the school, he and all the other students were lined up. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.